My time is yours. I was the last man standing. Welcome to the Vicious Circle. Sid, how you doing today? Well, we're not having Sid here today. We are so sick of internet, Sid. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that's a thing. He comes on here and he just starts trashing everybody. You ask a really, really good question, he just, he just does that. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> so we got tired of him, so we banished him from the studio. Yes. So Rob, today we're not the Vicious Circle. My name is Barry Norman, so this is the Norman Conquest. The Norman Conquest. Right. When the first thing we conquested was Internet Sid. So he's out of here. He's gone. It's just, a, it's just you and me today. Nice. I'm liking this. I'm liking it too. Yes. Of course, we won't tell him we said that. Uh, oh, no, no. We never, no, no, didn't say that. If you, if you can hear this, we love Sid. You're, you're, you're great, and, and, and please enjoy whatever you're doing now, which is obviously a lot more fun than we're going to have. Right. <laughs> So, Barry, this is going to be great because I've been learning so much about you. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's kind of (laughs) good. But it's been fascinating because WCW, that was not the only big thing you did. No, and actually, um, I'm going to share something with you that I've never even told Sid. Uh, We talked about this briefly last night, but I was actually once recruited to be a professional wrestler. You did mention yes. I, I, I did mention this. This is when I had just moved uh, to Florida from Denver, and um, I was a failed competitive bodybuilder there. I was I wasn't trying to be a pro or anything, but I no, I took all all the steroids, and I got I I went from one ninety five to two seventy, competed at two fifty five. So I moved to Florida with the the company I was with at the time, selling advertising, which is really thrilling. But I was still big, so I was working out at this gym, and this guy comes up to me and says, uh, "You have a look that uh, you ever thought of being a wrestler?" and no, I never thought about it because I, he goes, I'm with ICW, International Championship Wrestling. They're actually based out of Boston, which is where I'm from. And I knew a couple of, um, I, I knew one of their big names. Their champion was a guy named Jumpin' Joe Savoldi. His dad, Angela Savoldi, actually owned the promotion. So they wanted to expand to Florida for whatever reason. Florida already had Florida Championship Wrestling, which in 1986 had uh, Lex Luger was one of their big names, uh, Kevin Sullivan, uh, Maniac Mark Lewin, the, the Purple Haze. So they wanted to come and expand to Florida. So they, they're going to gyms looking for guys, and I have a look. I, well, I want to meet him at his hotel room no, that night to talk about it and see if this is going to work. Okay. I, I should have suspected something right then and there. So I get to his hotel room, and he starts saying, okay, I want to find out. I said, you obviously have the size and the look, but I said, I want to find out if you're going to be a wrestler, you have to be able to think on your feet and be physical at the same time. So he starts you know, calling out, and he says he knew I was a bodybuilder, or was. So he starts calling out poses, you know, hit a you know, front double by, while then asking me to move around and, and, and talk at the same time. So I was doing that, and he goes, wow, you, you really can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. And he says, I, I had to really see what your physique looks like. I saw you in the gym. He says, can you strip down to your underwear? 
No, no, no. I'm not going to strip down to my underwear in a hotel with a strange guy. No, no, telling me he's actually. Uh, I, I, at this point, I doubt that he's with ICW. I'm a promoter. I'm a promoter. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Say no more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he then, you know, he pulled out a business card. Not that any you know idiot can't print out a business card. He says, "Look, this is really legit. I'm sorry. I yes, I was looking for something else here, but I really am serious about this. I really am with the ICW. I really think you can do this." I said, we are starting to train new people. Go to the, uh, the, uh, the conference room of this hotel tomorrow. So I said, okay, it's, what's it going to hurt for me to check? If there's nothing there, then I know this whole thing was just a, a really, really creepy yeah. <laughs> no, incident that I'm not going to tell anybody. Not like I'm doing now. <laughs> so the next day I do go. And sure enough, there are actually people there you know, with the ICW, with a few other people. And the whole idea is we're going to train you for three hours today. And then you're going to actually have you know, a TV taping match tomorrow. What? I, I knew enough about wrestling. I said, there's no way anybody can be trained in three hours not to be a complete menace to both themselves and anyone they're working with. Yes. So I, no, so I, I passed on that. But, and, and they actually told me what they thought my gimmick was going to be. Uh, this, is, you know, this is South Florida, you know, 1986. Miami Vice is, is the big show. So I was going to be Isaac, no, because I'm Jewish, even though, uh, I mean, so uh, give me a Jewish name for all the South Florida, you know, my, my fellow Jews there. Isaac the Heat. Hunter, and my entrance music was going to be you know, Glenn Fry's "The Heat Is On," which was obviously you know became a big hit from from its placement in Miami Vice. And I, I'm I'm kind of, I I actually have an indiscriminate look. I people sometimes think I'm 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 Latin I'm Latin or Greek, so I'm dark. So what I could fit in. Maybe I'm one of the the drug dealers in a Miami Vice episode or, or whatever it is I am. So that was going to be my deal. I was going to be Isaac the Heat Hunter, and God knows what would happen since when I did work for WCW years later and met and worked with Kevin Sullivan. I told him about that. He said, oh, yeah, I would have stomped a freaking mud hole in you. (laughs) He said, if you're coming out here with absolutely... I said, we found out about what they were doing, desperately trying to get people, and not just to be a jobber, you know, not not just for a squash match. We're just going to... And they said, they were trying to find people to actually be real, no, no, uh, real people and no uh, real gimmicks that we were going to promote. And, and, and said, the rest of us did not like, said, yeah, you can't do that after, after three hours, whatever they're going to do, we were going to make sure you couldn't hurt us and we were going to absolutely kill you. Oh, wow. And, and anyone who knows Kevin Sullivan, even though he's just, you know, he's a, you know, he's a fire hydrant, you know, five foot five, just pure, you no, know, just pure. Yeah. I mean, his big thing was he always jumped on the, uh, on an opponent's stomach, but you can do it in a way where he's not hurting you. I can imagine what he would have done to me. Yeah. You know, I mean, everything would have been popping out of every orifice. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. so, so I guess the good news, if you want to call it, that someone thought I had a look, you know, and a physique, you know, good enough you know, to do that. The bad news is, first, the underwear thing in a hotel room. And, and oh, the funny thing about that is that the, a couple of days later, I actually saw that guy on the beach with his wife. And he sees me and his eyes goes white. He goes, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. No, I, I got, he's probably thinking I, I'm, I'm going to come up to him and pretend to blow the deal for him to try to blackmail him. Uh huh. Which I guess must have happened to him before. But it says, oh, I, I, so, so I'm kind of glad, you know, for a lot of reasons. One, I had no training and no business, you know, being in the ring with anyone. But I mean, I don't know if I want to be with an organization that that's the type of person that they have going out there. That's their front man. That's now, the front man. <laughs> he's, he's an honest creep. Because he did, he, 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 yep, you got me. <laughs> well, he was not, I mean, he really did work, no, work with the promotion. He really was scouting for talent, no, but I guess. Uh, he was yeah, scouting. He was, he, <laughs> he was scouting. So I don't know if I should take that as a compliment. Yes, he thinks I'm whatever. I'm, I'm yeah, that. see. I, right? So I, I, I could have been adorable Adrian Adonis before he was. Yes. Don't, what do you mean, yes? 
Yes, see, you, you think, could have been. I could have been. That could have been me. Yes. And then I, then I could have met Sid on totally different terms. Yeah, you would have been on the other end of the power bomb. And that would have worked out <laughs> so well for everybody. Oh, man. I, I mean, if Kevin would have would stomped the mud hole on me, what do you think Sid would have Holy done? Holy jeez. Yeah, no. We wouldn't be chatting. We wouldn't be chatting. <laughs> nope. Or I'd be in your hospital room because you're now paraplegic. <laughs> <laughs> So that was one of the interesting things I didn't do. But uh, the other things I actually did do is, um, no, as you know, you and I have a lot in common. Um, I'm, I'm an independent filmmaker like you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made you know, six films. Uh, I've, I've won you know, several awards of them. Uh, my, my most well-known film, once again, goes back to wrestling, is, is Deadbeats, the one that stars Mick Foley and Melissa McBride from um, The Walking Dead, Carol the Walking Dead. Yes. And I made that film after I I made the decision to become an independent filmmaker, and that came after my nationally syndicated alternative music radio show, there's there's a mouthful, in 1992, which is one of the biggest successful failures. It was success because we actually got it on the air. It was uh, syndicated in, in over 30 markets, including New York City. And I got to interview artists like you know, Kurt Cobain, you know, Nirvana, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Soundgarden. We got it on air, and then it actually got, the, the distributor was screwing us, which we didn't know. They added the show only because they were uh, for sale, and they wanted to have a, uh, an alternative show on their, uh, on their roster to up the sale price. So we only was able to do the show for three months, and the interesting thing about that is there's actually a uh, director-producer looking to make that into a film. Really? Well, because it is an interesting story. I mean, it's like uh, this big uh, potential success story. My partner and I, he was working for a record label, so technically he was in the music business, but in a small label. And I was working for WCW at the time before my job got eliminated, and this was in 1991-92, and alternative music was starting to happen. We came up with an idea of a one-hour format, a one-hour syndicated show that would hopefully get even more of these unknown artists by having these really interesting interviews and things like that. So it was a success. We got it on the air, and we actually did have, uh, got access to interview all these people backstage, Lollapalooza, interviewing Lou Reed. I mean, virtually anyone we wanted. Once you get on New York radio, all the record labels say they know they're, you're a player. You can do something for us. So therefore, anytime we wanted to interview one of their artists, you, you bet. So we, we had access to everybody. So after that, no, I, I don't want to say the word fail because I think it was a success, but yes, it was only on for 12, <laughs> or 12 shows before we found out we're not going to get paid because they're not doing anything to, to help it. You have to be syndicated to uh, over 80% of all the major markets in a country before you actually get advertising, and that's how syndicated shows, whether in radio or TV, get monetized. So I'm thinking now I, I'm, I have to move back to Atlanta because I left my doggy because the whole idea is the show is going to be successful. I'll be able to get a, a house with a, with a fence yard and I can bring my 120-pound white German shepherd up with me. So I moved back to Atlanta where he was. I'm thinking, what do I want, do I want to do now? I go, I want to be a filmmaker. So of course you do. So I go to the library uh, and I'll get a book called Feature Filmmaking at Used Car Prices by Rick Schmidt, you know, a how-to book that Kevin Smith uh, bought, and that's why, uh, why he made Clerks. And Vin Diesel bought, and that's when he made her, his first film, and that was the film that Steven Spielberg saw, and then he said, I'm going to cast him in Saving Private Ryan. Really? So, so, so Rick Schmidt, the, the author, and he's been an independent filmmaker you know, for decades, he, he's an icon in that industry. Nobody else knows him. He's made over 30 films. One of his films actually is the reason that we have The Gong Show in American Idol. But that's, but that's another story. This is about me. This is the Norman <laughs> Conquest, damn it. Rick, get your own podcast. Right. So, so I became um, an independent filmmaker, and I made that first film with, uh, with Rick, and that had some very, very good film festival success. And based on that, I came up with the idea accidentally uh, 
the, the film actually was in a very cool Portuguese uh, film festival uh, in Figueira de Foz, which is a, a little uh, uh, seaside resort town just south of Oporto. Oporto is where port wine is made. Okay. So uh, Figueira de Foz is a cool little town. Uh, it's, it's like a, a, co- a couple of miles north of Lisbon. There's like nothing in between. It's a long train ride or bus ride with nothing there. And then you get there and it's right on the ocean. And it's got this casino and a movie theater next to each other, and that was the venues for the, for the films. And then there was all these cool little cafes, like, and that's where everyone would hang out. So in between films, both filmmakers and people were going to watch the films and, and special guests, you'd be at these cafes and having lunch and, and, and dinner and all that. And it just became like this little village where all the people involved with the festival, both the watchers and filmmakers and all that, and I just love that. So it's a walking film festival. You see a film, you have, you have lunch, you schmooze, and I just love that uh, versus some of the other you know, uh, towns, the larger towns that have film festivals where the venues could be spread out. And so you don't have that chance to kind of congregate and just kind of, I mean, I like this type of film festival in a small town because someone who's just passing through will say, there's something going on here. I see these people with laminates, you know, things like that. What does that mean? And uh, there's, this all, there's this cool vibe. So um, a, a while later, I'm, I'm married at the time, and I take my, my wife into this little town of Dahlonega, Georgia, which is just north of Atlanta, a, a little uh, town just at the base of the Appalachian Trail. Uh, Dahlonega is actually a Cherokee word for gold. Uh, the, the gold rush was in Dahlonega before the, the gold rush was in San Francisco. Okay. So that's where, and so so that's where the whole town was made by, uh, by by the gold rush there, but it's still this real, real sleepy little, very, very right wing town. But it's cool. They have this old theater called the Holly Theater that was built in 1946, and so that became the base of where we're going to show the films. And then there's a town square that's in a circle. In the middle of the circle is the Gold Museum, and they had a little a projector, so that became a venue. And there was a little, there was a, a small military college nearby, and they had rooms, so that became a venue. And once again, all around the town, around the, the Gold Museum, were all these little you know, shops and restaurants and boutiques. So once you got to Dahlonega, which is not that easy from, from the Atlanta airport, but once you got there, everything is right there. You can, you, know, you can see a film at the Gold Museum or at the Holly um, uh, Theater or at uh, the North Georgia uh, uh, College and then have lunch, dinner, whatever, at all these little you know, cool local, no, obviously no chain restaurants and meet and, and, and have all that stuff. And... Um, and, and, and Sid was there as well. I mean, I invited Sid to come. Um, and I, I had John Waters. Now, John Waters, you know, the, the, the director of um, Pink Flamingos and Cry Baby, because I wanted the town to, to know that uh, this is what happens when you have an indie film festival. These are the type of people, because John is as indie as it gets. So John Waters is there. And I invited Sid, because uh, my partner at the time, and we talked about this briefly, he came up with the idea is, is uh, John Waters is going to have, uh, you can have, uh, meet him at this little symposium and then have dinner with him for $1,000. And my partner said, uh, we're going to advertise it. If you're uh, you know, an unemployed, struggling fil- no, uh, no actor or filmmaker, here's your chance to meet John Waters for $1,000. <laughs> And I said, can you listen to what you just said? <laughs> you know, an unemployed actor or filmmaker doesn't have, you know, no matter who it is, I mean, they may have, most of them don't have $1,000. Yeah. But I, I, I asked Sid, you know, know who I you know, who I was, we became friends at WCW, I said, if John Waters, you know, sees you, he's going to figure out how to use you in a film. And he goes, that's a great idea. I said, I'm going to take my son Frank and that'll be $2,000. And, and Sid and Frank were the only people that paid. <laughs> 
know, to be in this. So, so John was a little disappointed, you know, but he didn't care because he was getting paid his fee anyway. And he, and he was yeah. a good guy. And it was just fascinating to have him there. So we were talking about some of the, I don't want to say great things, but interesting things. So creating the Dahlonega International Film Festival was interesting. It lasted three years. And the reason why I, I left there was three reasons. One, the town didn't really have the type of businesses for sponsorship. It, they, it just didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people that came, uh, you know, the filmmakers, we had filmmakers from that first one from all over the world. We had a filmmaker from Japan, never been to the United States before, didn't speak a word of English. Oh, wow. Was having the greatest time of his life. You'd see that he had a smile on his face every second. Uh, oh, Red Bull was one of our sponsors. We had a big cooler of Red Bulls, and he comes in there, never had one. We gave him to, uh, one to him. 30 seconds later, he comes back to get like three more. No, five minutes after that, he gets an armful. <laughs> so this guy is just rushing on Red Bull, not speaking a word of English, smiling, you know, meeting everyone, hugging everyone. It was just so cool to see something like that, that you're making this guy's day, that we accepted his film. He didn't speak English, but he had it subtitled, obviously, but you know there's other companies that can do that for you. Uh, but then the reason I had to leave Delonica after three years is, one is the town decided that I was you know, so against the moral fiber of this very, very good Christian Southern Appalachian town. And the reason they came up with that idea is we, had, we have a program, as you know, because you have a film festival that you created, mm-hmm. to tell people these are the films, this is where they're playing and what time. And of course, we would have a synopsis. And in this one synopsis from a film from the Czech Republic, called Expulsion from Paradise. It, it was a narrative you know, feature, not a documentary, but it takes place on a nudist colony. So everybody's naked. Not for any sexual reasons. There's not a bit of sex in the movie, but this is what, where it's taking place. So in the synopsis, we, we say this. He says, no, because we want people to know you have no idea what this film is because these are indie films from yeah. all over the world. That No, this film does have a lot of nudity, including children. Once again, there's no sex, not no... And that just, oh my God, oh my God, there were protests. The local paper, the Lonica Nugget, said that I am Satan and I'm lowering the moral fiber of the town. And there were massive protests for the festival, especially because of this film. So, of course, what do you think happened with the screening of that film? It shot through the roof. It sold out. <laughs> yeah. so, so the good news was everyone had to see the film. Is The bad news is now the town is ready to come up with pitchforks and, 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 and torches you know, to run me out of there. And then the next thing that happened is I started getting emails from the National Alliance. The National Alliance is the, uh, the largest neo-Nazi organization in the country, and they had obviously a cell in Dahlonega, and somehow they found that I was Jewish. I'm not sure how. I mean, like I don't have this typical Jewish look. I'm tall and athletic, and that kind of, I don't look like a dentist or a lawyer. Um, but they found this out, so they started get, sending me emails saying, Satan spawned Jew. No, we're going to kill you if you stay here. I mean, a film festival is obviously the worst thing to them, because who, who goes to these film festivals? It attracts a lot of you no know, no gay people, the art, you no know, artists, everyone, and then the Jew boys running it. So this is something that you no know, uh, you know a, a cell of Georgian neo Nazis couldn't handle. So they're they're sending me death threats, and I I notified the FBI and that, but I answered them, and and one of them I answered is I'm your worst nightmare. I said I, I'm a, I'm a Jew boy that'll kick your ass. <laughs> I said I said I mean you see I'm I'm not Sid size, but I'm 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 not a shrinking violet either, and I'm not afraid of Nazis. <laughs> Um, so maybe I should be. So I, I said, I'll meet you in any parking lot you want. And I said, I said, yeah, you might kill me, but I guarantee I'll take one of you out and you won't know which one that is. I mean, I, I also got some of my, uh, you know, my, my not fear of Nazis is for a little while when, uh, when I, I mentioned before that I used to be on steroids and was a lot bigger than I am now. And I was a bouncer briefly at a, at a neo-Nazi skinhead club in Atlanta called the Metroplex. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> what? What do you say? <laughs> what? 
<laughs> I didn't hear something right there. I must not have. A neo-Nazi skinhead, no club, no, yeah, I call the Metroplex in, in downtown Atlanta. And I was there bouncing. I, w- I would wear a Starry David necklace, so there's no doubt now. <laughs> and they actually respected me because I, I, I never once got into a fight. They, they figured if I'm there, I must know something. And I, and I told them, anyone that got in my face that would give me a problem, hey, Jew, what are you doing here? I said, look, I don't care what you do in there. I said, as long as you're cool. I said, yeah. I said we have a, a Nazi skinhead band, and that's what you're coming, and you want to slam dance, and you want to drink, and all that. As long as you're not fighting and, and, and breaking the place up and doing anything that anyone, whether you're a neo-Nazi or not, can't do any place, you're cool with me. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to you know, keep the peace, and I'm not here to start a fight. And also, they okay. So I never got into any hassles there. But I guess maybe that says the way to handle Nazis is just never back down. I'm certainly not going to back down from someone threatening my life. Uh, I probably should. But <laughs> it, it, for those reasons, but mostly because there just wasn't the sponsorship levels, I, I decided to move the festival to, to Rome, Georgia, which uh, where, where they just had their 16th um, you know, film festival just a couple weeks ago. So even though I'm obviously not involved in it anymore, uh, it's still going strong. So uh, I've taken, once again, the circuitous uh, path to about when I, I became a, um, a filmmaker. And I'm running out of money, uh, as you would when you say, I'm just going to be a filmmaker. And yeah. I took crappy jobs just to support myself. I mean, I was a, a haunted house actor for the month of October once, where I was Jason. Uh, I, 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 and, but I was really running out of money. And then a friend of mine, uh, you know, you know he, uh, he was the head of our street hockey team you know, from, uh, from Michigan. And he said, and we had a party at his house, and he has this absolutely gorgeous mini mansion in Alpharetta, which is a real rich part, you know, a suburb of Atlanta. And his next door neighbor uh, was, uh, oh God, what's his name, Vincent? I'm forgetting his last name, but he was the, the all-star linebacker for my team, the New England Patriots. And I'm saying, how do you do all this? I mean, because he's just a little runt from Michigan. I mean, you could tell this guy was no, no, no brainiac. I said, what are you doing? He goes, you need a job, don't you? And I go, yeah. What do you do? He goes, I said, I'm a manager of a bill collection agency. You want a job, you got one. So I started off at his bill collection agency, and I mentioned at the, the podcast the other day, you know, that we that we did the other day, that I took my name partly from from Sid, partly from uh, Bret Hart, because you can't use your own name. Yeah. So I was Sid Hart. I thought not only am I combining two wrestling names, to being a bill collector, having the last name Hart is kind of ironic, because the last thing you are is showing a heart. You're yeah. there to get the money from them, you know, and just shame them. And I hated the job. I was phys- literally physically ill every day for what I had to do. And they would do everything they can to make you miserable. Thinking the more miserable you are, the bigger the hammer you're going to be on the phone. They would change your cubicle every couple of days. You're finally getting settled. This is where I am. This is, these are my neighbors. And they change you because that's kind of irritating. Keep you off balance. Keep you off balance. And then they would have uh, during, uh, they, they have little meetings before lines to you know, really talk up the people that are doing well and just insult the crap out of the people that weren't collecting that week. So you feel awful. So I, I, and and one of the people who was there, uh, he was a guy, he just got out of jail where he spent 14 years for manslaughter. So basically a murderer. And he loved the job because he said, wow, I get to basically go as far as I can against the law, brush up right against it, sitting in on my ass in front of a computer, just nailing these, you no know, these ditwads, you no, know, for money. And I'm making more money than I ever did, you know, as a thief, which is what you know, which is what he was when he when he killed someone. So I did that job for a month, hated it, finally quit, and I said, I think there's a film here. <laughs> <laughs> so my my dad had terminated insurance policy, and he said, Here, Barry, here's thirteen thousand dollars. I said, Well, if I'm a filmmaker, I make films. So I said, I, I've got to make a film based on this. So I wrote a script uh, called Deadbeats because uh, that's what we call you know, all these people that owe money. Yeah. 
and I thought that I want my main character. Uh, it's got to be, uh, you know, an interesting mix. He's, he's, he's obviously not a great guy. You know, he's, he's doing this job, but I wanted to be kind of likable. And I thought, well, I think Mick Foley could, could, could fit that bill. He's definitely, I mean, he is, is working in wrestling. He knows how to do different personas. He has a very engaging personality, but I don't think it would be too hard for someone to see him as that. So I, 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 I approach him, and, and this is just when he was leaving WCW and about to go to the WWF, so we had three days. I said, well, it's a, it's a short film. I, we might be able to do this. I actually used the money. I hired a production company, had a half-ton uh, truck of every type of equipment you can ask for. Every single you know, production person in the crew that you need to really make it go, I mean, uh, I mean a script supervisor, who they used to call continuity. I had all the gaffers and grips and everyone to set up the shots and, and tear everything down and go to the next thing. And I had um, uh, the, this guy who I knew he, he, had, he had directed before and I made him the co-director. I said, you do the technical stuff because I'm not as sure about all that stuff. And I said, I'm going to work you know, with the actors. So that's how, how we split that up. And, and we did, we, 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 made, we made Dead Beats in three days and, and, and Mick was great. And the co-star was Melissa McBride was a local Atlanta you know, actress. She had done, had some credits. Uh, she, you know, she later did like a couple of shows on Dawson's Creek. Everyone knows her now as you know, Carol in The Walking Dead. Yes. So, so the film has actually found a life of its own. It's been heavily pirated and downloaded for free. So I haven't made, I, I made a total of $2.43 on it because Troma Films ended up being distributing it. Troma is um, the Toxic Avenger series. Yes. Uh, Surf Nazis with, must die. There, there's Nazis again. Monster in the Closet. So the idea was the people that liked those films probably were wrestling fans. And, and we were right. You know, so once people found out you know, originally you know, that Mick Foley was in it, that's what sold. It was on a compilation uh, DVD called The Best of Tromba Dance 2. Uh, and, and, and Sid and I actually went down you know, to uh, Park City, Utah, where Sundance Film Festival, Slam Dance, and about 30, 40 other films. There's people that will have a van driving up and down Main Street, the main drag of Park City, say, I have a film. Want to see it? It's in the back of my van. <laughs> Not the creepy guy, you know, hey, little boy, here's some candy. I don't know. <laughs> if you had a film, you any way you could show it in Park City during all these festivals, because the entire entertainment industry converges on Park City. If you're in music or television or film, anything, even if you have nothing to do with any film that's being shown in any festival, that you have to be seen there. You have to be at the parties. If you can't get in, into any one of the parties, you know your pecking order in the industry. You're just not cool. Yeah. You just don't make it. So uh, I, I, I took Sid again, just like with the John Waters thing. He says, let's go. I said, uh, um, I, I said uh, he's, he's actually going to do a thing with, uh, with Troma. Troma says they have a uh, no, Troma dance. And they were going to have uh, Sid do like a live disemboweling of himself. So like a little skit where he's supposed to like take a knife and just cut himself open and blood, and it was going to be like really, really analog and really, really cool. So he, there was a purpose for him to be here. But the main thing was you're going to be seen, I mean, people are going to see you. And yes. Some are going to recognize you, and those that don't are going to say, look at this guy. Now, I, I had to be able to use him in some film I have. I mean, I was actually hoping that uh, Troma would use him for uh, future Toxic Avengers because he was 10 times bigger and more muscular than anyone that they ever had in the role. So think of him. Yes. You know, as, as Toxie. So, so that's how I ended up. So that's, that was, um, like I said, my, my, my dipping my, my toes in, in, the, in the indie film business. Uh, I, like I said, I've made uh, no six films. Sid is actually in uh, uh, one of my films, uh, a film I did in 2007 called um, uh, No Tears for Bankers. 
and and and, and he plays uh, no, a, a pivotal role in that. He just you no, know, he, he he drove up from Arkansas, you know, showed, showed up for one day. And these are once again uh, the director is Rick Schmidt, the one that wrote the book um, feature filmmaker at Used Car Bryces, and his films are shot in five days, no script, all improv. So Sid is perfect for this, right? I mean, he knows how to do that. And um, the, the 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 base the premise of this is uh, we there, there, this is in Rome, Georgia, where my film festival moved, and there was this gorgeous Victorian bed and breakfast there. That's what I put VIPs up, you know, who are bringing in for the film festival. And once again, for for a no script film, a cool location is, is the number one thing. And then if you can find other people that you think might might, might work in a, in, a, in, a, in a no budget improv film. So the basic premise, the only premise of the film is I own this bed and breakfast with my, with my wife and I'm failing miserably at it. It's just not going well and I'm trying to get loans from the bank and they don't want a loan to me. And uh, so, so the part Sid plays, it's, it's actually a, a, another part of this world that's fascinating. I called this friend of mine that I hadn't seen in 25 years. We worked together in Denver. Hadn't, I, I don't know how I got his number. This is where you know, the internet is good. You can find people you haven't spoke to. So I haven't seen him or spoken for in 25 years, and he's, not, he's living in Houston now. I go, hey, Greg, how you doing? It's Barry. I go, great, what are you doing? I'm making a film. Want to be in it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Let's do that. So he drives from Houston to Rome, Georgia, with his two teenage daughters, who are both absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous. He goes, he thought it'd be a bonding moment. So they show up, well, you're going to be in the film. So his daughters play my, you know, my interns, and I end up firing them. And, and Greg, my, my friend, he is their dad. And he is richer, richer, richer than anything. So the scene that, that we have there is he's all pissed off at me because this internship was necessary for them to get you know, uh, you know, uh, to get into the type of schools they want to get into. And I, I ruined it for him. He wants to negotiate with me and all this. And it's not going well. And Sid, who is my friend in real life, is my friend who's obviously visiting there. And he hears the argument. And he comes in there. And he said, and part of what uh, he said in this film we were talking about last night is when you're negotiating, talking to someone, you can't go to the brink. Once you go to the furthest end where I fired him, I'm not going to listen. Where do I go from there? So yeah. he starts in this scene, starts talking about how, how you can't do that, how there has to be some form of compromise. Otherwise, what's going to happen here? So he got at the end of that scene, no, no, Greg, no, the, the rich guy whose daughters I fired, no, we shake hands and, and he's going to, and, and he actually said he's going to help me. He knows I'm trying to get a loan at the bank. And since he's this big muckety muck in, in town, he can, might help with that. And then, once again, in Prague, we didn't have this. We actually, looking around the bed and breakfast, we saw some possible symbols that this may have been a Masonic temple at one point. So all of a sudden, the, the script turned. There is no script. And, <laughs> and Greg want, is now, as a former Mason himself you know, in, in, in the film, he wants to buy the bed and breakfast because he, he wants to restore it to its, you know, its glory of, of a former Masonic temple. And he has the money to do it. So originally, so that makes it seem so pivotal because Sid solves a problem and now this guy's going to stab me in the back because now he wants the building for himself. So he's able to turn the bank. To, and the funny thing is a lot of things that happened in this film happened kind of sort of me in real life with my, with my um, movie theater that I owned in Brunswick trying to get loans from banks and just not getting anywhere with them. So he's stabbing me in the bank. He wants to take over. And now I have this scene. And this was a scene that was originally supposed to be with Sid. 
there was a, a restaurant. Uh, you're not getting a word in edgewise yet. You probably knew that when we started this. Right? Oh, I knew that. Okay, <laughs> fair, fair enough. I just want everyone else to know that uh, that I he, am still here. He is still here. He's, he's, he's actually you know nodding his head at the right places. He's he's, he's, he's semi engaged with what I'm saying. So the, the the other scene that I actually had in mind for Sid, even though it's um it's all improv, is yeah. Have you heard of the Red Hat Ladies? We talked about this. Yeah, the Red Hat Ladies is a social group. There's chapters all over the country, I think all over the world. And that's just what they said. They're, they're ladies, usually you know, older women, and they wear red hats and red and purple dresses, and they will meet for lunch, and they will go to movies. In Brunswick, Maine, where I had my theater, there was a Red Hat Ladies chapter there, and a bunch of them would come every now and again as a group to see a film that interested them. So it's a, they're a really nice, interesting group. So there was a restaurant in, in downtown Rome called the Victoria Rose Room. Which is as gentle and polite as you can imagine it would be, you no know, tea and crumpets type of place. And it was a red hat lady hangout. So my idea was to have all the red hat ladies in the restaurant, you no, know, for, for a group thing, and Sid and I, you know, eating lunch there, and we're gonna get into an argument. Here's Sid with his size, and me once again not being that big, but no shrinking violet either. And what are the red hat ladies gonna do when we get into this huge, you know, massive argument, these two you no know, big guys? Well, Sid wasn't able to be there for that scene, so now we have to come up with something else. So that's when uh, Rick, you know, uh, who's directing this, decided to know this uh, woman playing my wife, and she was way age-inappropriate for me. Now, I had originally cast a woman more appropriate for me, but she couldn't make it, so this other guy who was a photographer on the shoot, I know a girl, she'd be perfect. You know, so he got this you know, girl, Brittany Hanna. Uh, I'm you know, in my late 40s. She's 23, 24, gorgeous. So yeah, so she's my wife. So now we're having, you know, we're, we're having lunch together, and this is where I admit to her that the bank is about to foreclose and we're about to lose everything. And she just becomes apoplectic. You know, we're in this together. How can you not tell me? And this triggered something in me because I've been married and divorced twice. And the idea of failing you know, for your wife, you know, not, not coming through, just triggered something. And this is where sometimes the magic you know, can happen in, a, in, a, you know, in an improv film. I just break down, completely, absolutely, utterly break down. The red hat ladies, who because we didn't tell them what the scene's going to be, because we don't know what the scene is going to be. We just said, "Don't look, no, don't look at the camera or anything like that." But I can see out of the corner of my eye that a lot of them are. I'm making a face of shock, putting my hand. They don't know what's going on, because I am completely, totally, absolutely. Because this, like I said, this triggered every real fear I have about my life. I'm failing for a woman I care about, and you can't do that. And not only did I fail, I wasn't totally honest about it. So there's nothing defensible about what I can do here. No, I, I just, so it made, you no. Know, everyone said, oh my God, and, and Rick made me do the, film, the, the scene a second time. He usually doesn't do that. And so he says, can you do that again? I go, I don't know. I did it again because once again, it didn't matter. Even though the conversation wasn't identical, it was still touching on the same topic. So I'm an absolute rag after this. So that scene is done. That's when all the Red Hat ladies went out to it. Go, Are you okay? <laughs> Are you all right? <laughs> Um, I mean, because they, they didn't know. They had no yeah. idea because, I mean, I mean, no one knew was I, no one had seen me that I was great and no Shakespearean actor and that I can turn the waterworks on, off and on. So they just see someone who's literally breaking down and see that this is the greatest acting they've ever seen or something seriously wrong with this guy. So it was actually quite touching you know, that, you know, that they did that. So, so once again, not knowing this is what's cool about an, a, a, an improv film is Sid's scene where supposedly everything was straightened out I'm going to get the loan. And then my, my, my old buddy you know, in, in the movie turns against me and that's it for the loan and we're losing everything. So it actually, that was the pivotal scene in the movie that made everything after that possible. So um, 
You can find this on the internet. No, no tears for bankers. I think I, I think it's on Vimeo or some other uh, platform. So if anyone wants to see, you know, me break down and Sid with a pivotal scene, no, it, it is out there. Um, it does uh, feature music uh, by uh, Mission of Burma. Uh, they're uh, they're a Boston-based band, but they are internationally known. I mean, they they did a song that Moby covered uh, called "That's When I Reach for My Revolver." And um, REM used to cover a lot of the songs. So they're like one of those bands that they never became huge themselves, but they're well-known in the industry. So we, uh, I got to license a couple of their songs. And Roger Miller, you know, the lead guitarist and, and one of the vocalists in the group, he actually is in the film too. Nice. And he actually does a, an actual live performance in the film. And he does other stuff. But for any of you who actually do want to see this film somehow, I'm not going to spoil what he is. So, so, so Roger Miller's in it, who's a you know, well-known um, you know, musician. And Sid's in it, and, and you can see me breaking down in it. So let's see. So I've covered film festivals, Nazis, uh, a film breaking down, film that Sid was in. Let's see. Um, any other cool things that you want to hear about, or, 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 is that, or is that more than enough? You know what? I think the Norman Conquest has been a success. Woohoo! Yes. So, so, so Sid's fired? He's done? I, I'm beginning to wonder. Okay. So Tell you what, let's get to our question and we'll find out. My time is yours. Okay, we got our caller here. Now it says, unknown name, unknown number. Uh, who do we have on the line? Why are you locked out of your own studio? Because just like you said, you're Internet Sid and everyone's sick of Internet Sid. So we had to get rid of you. This is my show right now. People are digging it and that's the way it's going to be. Any, any questions of that, Sid? Well, give me time to throw up and I'll think of one. <laughs> I've had my fill with you. You've come into my studio, you've stayed in my house, you're eating my Honey Nut Cheerios. You realize those are my Honey Nut Cheerios you're eating. I do realize that. I I should be able to come into my own house. I wanted maple-flavored Cheerios. Remember that? I said maple. We have a Canadian here. I said the least you can do is have the maple-flavored Cheerios, but you got the Honey Nut because that's what you wanted. Oh, I forgot about that. All right, so what is this show called now? The Norman Conquest, and people are liking it. We've had calls up the wazoo way more than the Vicious Circle ever got, right? Huh? Huh? I'm not lying. No <laughs> way. No way. Okay, so it's called, uh, okay, it's your show. Let me ask you a question. Um, when's the last time you had a date? Next caller, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, guys. Right, what if I was to say, change my ways? Hold on a second. Somebody wants to talk to you. Hey, guys, this is an internet shit. This is Sid, the good Sid. So we got Sid Udi now. Okay. Hi, Sid. How are you? Those hundred nut cherries were great. What was that? I'll be good. I promise not to start trouble anymore. Yeah, yeah. You say, you say that because you're locked outside. <laughs> I, I, I understand how this works. Yeah, you're going to be good. Come on, guys. Give an old guy a break. <laughs> well, 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 you've already had a break. <laughs> That's true, I broke my leg. But, you know, I mean, people do change, Barry. And you said yourself that since you've known me, I've really become a better person. And I, I think just for you, just for you, and just only for you, I think I could change for the good. And, and I could be a good person to sit down and talk to you guys and, and probably, you know, keep myself in, in, in line. I think you are a better person. You're a much better person when you're locked outside and we're inside. So that's the better person. And I, and I, and I, and I open this door before I kill you. <laughs> Well, that's really going to get the door open now, isn't it? Oh, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I just found my keys. We got to go. Hey, Bye. Just a second. Barry just, like, left the studio. Barry, don't you run. You've been listening to the Vicious Circle Podcast. Your host, Sid Udi. 
co-host J. Robert Bellamy. Additional research by Pete Marsh. The Vicious Circle podcast was produced by Two Cousin Road Trip Media, a division of JX3 Media Productions. The intro music, Omega Amigo, was by The Shaman. All rights to the podcast are held by Sid Udi.